Welcome to the Free to Choose Media Podcast. Today's podcast is titled, What Works and What Doesn't in Our Criminal Justice System? Behavioral scientist Robert McCown, director of the RAND Corporation's criminal justice program, Joan Petersilia, and Peter Greenwood, the program's senior researcher, discuss the intricacies and challenges of building a better criminal justice system. Listen now, and don't forget to subscribe to get updates each week for the Free to Choose Media Podcast. I find this is a really intriguing time to be involved in, in crime research. Uh, here it's, it's pushed its way up onto the national agenda. The president's concerned about how many police officers there are on the street. In a lot of cities like Los Angeles, it's the number one concern. Here, 25 years ago, uh, crime was on the presidential agenda. President Johnson had this, this, this uh, national commission. His campaign with Barry Goldwater was, was fought over public safety issues. There's been a lot of work done in 25 years, and it's not clear to me that we we made a whole lot of progress about how to tell people how to be more safe. In fact, 25 years ago, there was some hope that by being kinder to offenders and, and kind of having more friendly prisons and, and more job opportunities, that alone would solve the crime problem. That didn't turn out to be true. And uh, it's not clear whether, whether there are things that the criminal justice system can do to make public safer. What do you think about that? Do you think we got anything to offer? Well, my sense is that we should have paid very close attention to what the President's Crime Commission offered in terms of recommendations. We didn't. In fact, we went in the exact opposite direction. I mean, their major recommendations for increasing public safety were to basically get people out of secure institutions, particularly juveniles, quit locking them up, develop community-based programs, invest in prevention. And in fact, the country, because it got so politicized, went in exactly the opposite direction. We have more, more youth and more adults in prison than ever before. So my sense is that yes, we're waging kind of the second major war on crime. And we should have, we should have paid attention to what people were offering. We have invested heavily in prisons. And um, you know, that's where the money would have come for investing in kind of prevention and community-based programs. And I think all the experts, including our own research, shows that that would make much more sense than locking people up. I'm glad to hear you say that because Peter was depressing me a little bit. I, um, feeling like it, maybe I should switch to health policy or some some new area, but uh, yeah, there is a there is a sense I think in which uh, this debate is so politicized that it's very hard to tease apart research findings from from ideology. And so, uh, I mean, there's this tension between moralism and pragmatism, and and it, uh, for a politician, it's always easier to make a moralistic kind of retributive uh, argument. There's this kind of tough-minded versus tender-minded, and for a politician it always seems to be easier to take the tough-minded position so you don't get labeled as soft on crime or out of touch with the real world. And uh, a lot of politics think, really have driven this. I think part of my frustration comes to the fact that I've spent six years now doing experiments with treatment programs for juvenile offenders. That was one of the recommendations. We had to get much smarter about, about dealing with offenders when they were young, trying to get them involved with school, trying and solve family problems. And in fact, what I thought was wrong with, with, with many of the programs in the past weren't th were that they were not well run. And so here I've spent six years getting outstanding private providers to provide state-of-the-art programs of education and family counseling and reiterating kids back into the community. And it doesn't seem to make much difference. And what it turns out is, is by the time somebody's 16 years old and they're on the criminal track, they're really resistant to change. And I think that throws us back to what criminologists have said for 30, 40 years, is that you have to start really young 
that crime is kind of a product of society and larger social forces. And putting somebody in prison at 20 isn't going to have a big impact on crime. you got to go back early. And, and a lot of leading criminologists feel even stronger about that kind of view today. Well, I mean, I, I kind of share your frustration having been also involved in designing and implementing rehabilitation programs for adults, which don't seem to make much difference. But I think the public and even we as researchers expect to this to be kind of a quick fix. I mean, even your programs, I mean, they're implemented and we follow people up for a year. They may not have been implemented well, and one year may just be too short. I mean, I think when we, what we know about relapse is these people, once you're a criminal, you can't implement some modest intervention and expect to really reduce new crime it's a that whole, quickly. It's a whole lifestyle. It's a whole thing, a whole and we need lifestyle. to keep going back. And, mm -hmm. you know, in health research and um, education research, they don't expect some quick fix. I mean, you didn't you know, discover a cure for cancer, you keep going back, you, you modify, you take different populations, and you keep trying to, to come up with what, what might be the best treatment. We haven't done that in criminology. We're a fairly new field. Um, you know, I think we're making progress, but I think we've got to stick to it. Um, I, I do think that we've seen some successes that we didn't see 20 years ago. And we all also have new problems, Rob. Your research on the juvenile drug dealers shows that there's a strong market incentives for those kids to be out there dealing drugs. Yeah, we live in an entrepreneurial society. We live in an entrepreneurial very, society. Very uh, materialistic society. And uh, adolescent drug dealers are choosing one, one path to material success and entrepreneurial success. In fact, a lot of entrepreneurial cunning and initiative is going into street-level drug markets. So juvenile crime isn't penny-ante stuff of, of what it was 20 years no, ago. We're not, it's, we're it's, it's big dollars yeah, where right. a 16-year-old kid can support his parents. Well, and that's kind of, you know, when we're talking about Clinton's plan, I mean, his youth and community service where kids will get, in fact, trained and then pay back um, in terms of they'll be able to go to college and vocational ed and then pay back in terms of community service programs, I think is designed to reach those kids who need need more than just a job at McDonald's. I mean, they need to see a way out of that, you know, lower income community. I think one of the other changes we see now that, that wasn't true 10 or 15 years ago is that the politicians are still afraid to sound soft and mm -hmm. want to sound tough. But hardly any serious practitioner in a business, chief of police, prosecutor, believes that by being tough they can change crimes. And now you find police chiefs and prosecutors being leading advocates of, of really targeted prevention-based efforts focused on kids, focused on families in troubles. They understand they have to do something about that, that they can't solve the problem by themselves by locking up people when they're 30 years old. One of the things I find interesting about the drug game which we've developed in which community leaders can come in and participate in a two or three day uh, uh, simulation of, of uh, a drug crisis in a hypothetical city, New Elsinore. When you bring the uh, corrections people and the law enforcement people into the game, they don't necessarily seek out the, the tough-minded solutions. They start drifting toward rehabilitation and, well, we need more treatment and, you know, we want to divert these cases to treatment programs if we can coordinate that with the treatment system. And I find it interesting. They're not the ones who are, who are seeking out tougher and tougher. And I think that why we see kind of crime becoming a political issue, we didn't see it nearly as much in this presidential campaign as we saw kind of the Willie Horton of the previous presidential campaign. I think politicians also recognize that crime 
needs to be moved out of the political arena and back into the hands of, of kind of the experts, both the practitioners and the justice system officials. And I think you're right. There's a, a great deal of consensus about what needs to be done. I mean, all the way from the people who are operating treatment programs to the people who used to be tough-minded law enforcement, like you said, prosecutors, sheriffs, police chiefs, are now the biggest proponents for prevention programs. But there are still some, some tough political questions if the answer is to help poor kids. And in California, we're, we're, we're amongst the top in states when it comes to locking people up, and we're amongst the bottom in states when it comes to the conditions of kids, number living in poverty, number finishing school. And if you want to help kids so they don't become criminals, we have this problem of, well, we'd like to do that, but we also don't want to reward their, their parents who aren't taking good care of them. And, you know, it's the same, same with welfare reform. We have this, we want to help, but we don't want to give people you know, too many benefits or incentives for their yeah. you know, immoral behavior. Well, as a psychologist, my, my tendency is to want to look for psychological explanations for crime. But in fact, I mean, I, there's just no denying that there are these broad socioeconomic trends that we have to deal with. Um, I mean, on the one hand, we've got an aging of the population. And one of the things we've really solidly established in criminal justice research in every industrialized country is that uh, crime is disproportionately committed by the young. So maybe one piece of good news there is with the aging of the population, we'll continue to see declines in violent crime and property crime. But then on the other hand, you've got increased residential mobility. People don't stay in the same neighborhood as long, so you get this deterioration of the informal social controls of a neighborhood, reputation effects and things like that. And then you've got uh, Lynn Carroll here at Rand has documented this widening widening gap between uh, the rich and the poor, which is, um, since we also know that lower socioeconomic status groups are more likely to be involved in violent and property crimes. So we're going to see increasing uh, concentration of crime among those groups. Um, and then we've, what, something we've been talking about is uh, dissemination of information in the media. We've got this more and more rapid uh, and dense dissemination of information about crimes, you get these copycat homicides and copycat suicides and, and uh, um, this constant escalation and how much gore you can show in a movie and how much gore you have to show in a movie to try to sell that movie. And, uh, and the words of the rap music and stuff. I mean, there's incredible violence promotion out there in the media. The other thing that you said about, ki about you know, we expect kids to age out of it. It's a, it's a young people's phenomenon. One of the things that seems to be going on is, is people aren't aging out of it as fast as they used to. Drugs postpone it. Drugs postpone formation of family, growing up, getting a job. And so the whole gang phenomenon is you've got 24-year-olds out there yeah. acting like 14-year-olds. I mean, crime, drug use is really low impulse control. You know, acting yeah. like a 12-year-old who can't keep his hand out of the cookie jar. Only we're talking about cocaine or we're talking about... Well, in you fact, know, yeah, another, another truism that seems to be breaking down is part of the aging phenomena had, had we always thought it was, well, you, once you get a job, then you have some stability and you're less likely to be involved in crime. But one of the things that was distressing when we interviewed all these adult drug dealers in Washington, D.C., is uh, two-thirds of them had a full-time job, but they were still selling drugs, and it was moonlighting. They were basically doing it as a way to make some extra money, and they needed the extra money. I'm not... Uh, so, well, I think, so right. I think so all of this, breaking up. this discussion about kind of the, the complex nature in which somebody decides to commit crime, family variables, media variables, all of that, I think one of the things we've become smarter about is that the criminal justice system can do very little. Police courts and corrections can have very little effect 
on kind of that multitude of social dimensions that are going on in communities which produce crime. And so I think another thing we're getting smarter about is kind of the community has to basically get involved, that they cannot any longer think that the police are or then the courts and prisons are going to be able to solve this problem when the conditions are such that we just keep creating new and more generations right. if the who become criminal. If the community condones drug use or condones violence, you know, having a few extra cops out there isn't going to do anything to change the level. Well, if you, I mean, if you, the contemporary urban community, uh, a neighborhood where, you know, maybe some people have lived there for 20 years, but most people have just moved in a year ago and maybe the people who used to be next door have just left and you've got people coming and going. No one knows each other. How, how are policymakers going to bring communities together when these communities don't have an identity of their own? Well, I mean, you know, we're, we're kind of skirting the issue about, I mean, if somebody came in this room and asked us, what is the one thing that is most predictive of whether or not a kid's going to get in trouble. We know it's the family. And that's the one area where, in fact, we get skirtish about interventions. But, but we know that what happens early in that early age between parenting, kids, um, their need for peer recognition, which puts them into gangs, their need for highs, which gets them involved in drugs and alcohol. But we know that the family is critical. And, and that's one thing that... that is sensitive, we're afraid to manipulate the family, we're afraid to get involved in the family, but that's probably where the biggest bang for the and buck is we're not, we're not is sure exactly what to do. I mean, there have been some programs that try to recruit difficult families, and, you know, it's not, it's not clear. There is no absolute, you know, strong evidence out there about how we know how to jump in. Certainly there's an opportunity, and it looks like we need to do something, but it's still a little bit up in the air about how we proceed to do that. We you know, need to I be guess experimenting with a bunch of When you of think, techniques. bringing back to kind of the President's Crime Commission, I mean, they concluded with the statement, the greatest need is the need to know. I mean, 25 years ago, we really didn't know what the nature of crime was, who was committing it, who the perpetrators were, how the courts were operating. We didn't, we didn't have basically data. And we've spent, I think, 25 years getting data on all aspects of the system. We now know much more about who the offenders are and how they're currently dealt with. We know much less about what to do. I mean, we're kind of at that stage now where, where we've developed baseline information, if you will. We've tried some interventions, but I think the next 25 years is probably more on trying innovative programs with good evaluations, good money behind them, good staff. I mean, I think we're now you know, at that point in the development of kind of criminology, if you will, and kind of crime policy. And some people are arguing and, and calling for another president's crime commission, saying the time is now ripe to do that. What do you think about that? I mean, do we need... I don't, I don't know if the answer is, is another commission, but certainly focusing national debate on some on, on alternatives to just lock them up, prison, police, to dealing with the crime and the connection of crime to, to social conditions is certainly an important issue. One thing I worry about the commissions, I think it seems like every 12 or 15 years in this country we have a, a national commission on media and, and violence. And every time there's a lot of research suggesting a link between media and violence, every time there's a critique that says the methodology isn't tight enough, we haven't made this an airtight case of cause and effect, um, but recommendations are made. The media decide to police themselves 
um, so that no one regulates them. So they say we're going to cut, we're going to voluntarily cut back on on violence in the media. That happens for a little while. 10, 15 years later, we have another commission on media and violence. The methodology is a little tighter this time, but they say, well, we still need better data. The media say we're going to police ourselves, and uh, and then it just happens again. And I, well. Yeah. I mean, no I doubt the media is getting more violent, right? I mean, yeah. there's no yeah. doubt about yeah. it, right? They compete yeah. to see how much gore, how much blood yeah. hits the camera lens. Yeah, and so, I, you know, I worry a little bit about these, these commissions well, I, make I, us I, feel like we've done something. I think you're right, and I also think that the problems in, in the area we're talking about, I mean, crime, there's such an urgency to do something that, you know, I mean, we've got gun control. I mean, that's a big topic. I mean, there's just things that are so much on the national agenda that, that kind of to create a commission seems like such a small step. Well, um, there is, about there is a new proposal on the table. I mean, the one new proposal on the table uh, from President Clinton, and I think this is one thing that took crime out of the political debate, was you have this Democratic candidate very early on calling for more police. And wait a second, isn't that what the Republican guy is supposed to say? And I think that kind of stopped the well, Republican but, but he, soft on crime thing. Sure. But what do you think about this idea of more well, police? I mean, um, I mean, you've been arguing that, that we, we have too, too much of a heavy-handed law enforcement style. Some people might see... Well, I mean, I guess I just want to... Uh, I think what Clinton did is exactly what we need to do. He both called for more tough law enforcement, which I think we need. There's violent people out mm -hmm. there. We need mm -hmm. to create enough prison space to remove them. We've got to have police to identify, arrest, and get them out of, off the streets. But we also need to invest in children. And Clinton made clear early on in that initial speech, he was going to take the initiative to do both, to basically invest in kids and invest in a, a system that we can have faith in that's going to be credible to remove violent people. Mm -hmm. um, and that's what we need to do. And he, there's also a middle program in there, the community service one. I mean, I mean, when we're looking at, at what you're going to do with 18-year-olds, for kids who are coming out of communities, where there's no clear paths on where to go on, some kind of community service that gets them into providing public health services or teachers' aides or what have you seems to be in a really important stepping stone, and it's the kind of resources uh, communities need. The other thing is the police don't just have to go out and chase people and make arrests. They can become community problem yeah. solvers, which is the, the community policing mode. I mean, that's a dramatic change from what policing was 20 years ago to say, Mr. Policeman, here's your four blocks. Go out and figure out what the problems are and help the citizens solve their problems. Work with them is very different than, than you know, find out who the bad guys are and go chase them. Yeah, I think some people in Los Angeles reacted, oh, God, after the Rodney King thing, do we need more police? But in, uh, you know, watching the, the, the violence of the videotape. But, uh, in fact, I think it's quite likely that if, in Los Angeles in particular, where we don't have uh, nearly as many police per capita as other big cities, the stress on police officers is so enormous. Uh, and that kind of stress is going to lead to, to more I, incidents. I think given the, the level of violence in the community the, the, that's going on right now, it, there's no question that, that, that we need more police officers. We know places where we need them. There are people have done studies that you can focus on a few residents, a few locations, a few bars. That's where fights occur every night. And that's where disturbances are going on. We need, we need police officers posted at specific kinds of high crime locations to cut down on that behavior. And I think what Pete's saying is, is our traditional model of more police doesn't need to apply. I mean, a lot of other communities are using their police in quite different ways to get victims to report, um, to basically take victims to the court, make them feel safe, to testify. Um, I mean, there's a lot of things in terms of a, a more community-based model 
that other communities have tried with a great deal of success, and it reduces fear. I mean, people want to see police presence simply because it does make them feel more secure. Whether or not it actually reduces real crime, it may not. But what we care about is how people feel. I mean, that, that point brings to mind one of the other benefits that we've had over the last 25 years. One of the things the Crime Commission and the other research that went on discovered was that there were a lot of bad things going on in the criminal justice system. When you didn't know what cops were doing, some of them were not doing good things. There was corruption, the wrong kind of people, runaways were getting put in prison, juveniles were getting mixed with adults, they were getting mm -hmm. assaulted, they were committing uh, suicide when they were locked up in jail. So a lot of those problems, you know, the, you know, the, the intervention, the criminal justice system was almost causing more problems than it was solving. And a lot of those, most of those, I think, have been, been cleaned up in the last 20 years. Well, I think another thing that's been cleaned up, and we've, you know, as a group of people that have studied the system, I mean, I think racial discrimination in the justice system, not saying it's been eliminated, but I think as the whole police court process has become more open, to scrutiny from researchers and other people that racial bias has been reduced and some of our studies I think show that and also as guidelines for decision making are now driving kind of who gets prosecuted how they get sentenced who gets sentenced to prison the notion that that you know minority groups that the system is just bias outright racially bias i mean i think i think there probably is racial bias but i think it's down in the street level, the decision to arrest, who's arrested, who's detained, that. But I think once they get into the court system, um, that it's that we have made major progress in that. But Joan, there's a, the, the paradox is, well, maybe it's not a paradox, but um, that's certainly not the perception of minority communities. Um, I've, been, I've been collecting public opinion surveys over the past few years on uh, public opinion toward the police and, and the fairness of the police and legitimacy of the police. And there's just clear evidence, not just in Los Angeles, but in other cities, that the minority communities feel that they are treated differently. They're treated less fairly. The system is stacked against them. And now, you know, some of the research that shows that, in fact, when you statistically control for prior record and other factors that affect sentencing, there's no race effect on sentencing. I think that's right, but that's a very complicated argument. And the, but the perception yeah. is that you know, in my neighborhood, I know all these people that went to prison. Um, and uh, well, I think you're right, and both things can be true. I think the public perception that the criminal justice system and primarily police are racist is driven by harassment, mm -hmm. and it's driven by handling of misdemeanors, drunks, homeless. I mean, it's what they see. And, the way and that may well be racist, yeah. but once they get into the official court system where things are recorded and judges know that they can be monitored, I think the system becomes more unbiased. But I think that public perception is not driven by that relatively minor part. It's driven by how they're dealt with generally in the community. And, and it is kind of, you know, you don't, don't know why there are such bad opinions I mean, you don't know if it's fact or just somehow I the mean, the media coverage again. Part of it gets back to the point Rob made about cities like L.A. and most big city areas are really under-policed, and you're, you're sending a policeman into a really dangerous situation, right? I mean, they're going in wearing, wearing bulletproof vests, expecting to get shot at. They're afraid, and they don't treat people very well, and they don't, and they, and they react and that violently situation in situations. So we're putting them in very difficult too. situations. Yeah. And, 
you know, we get experience with that in other kind of countries. You put troops in that kind of situation, they don't behave well in those situations. They're and not they start control. becoming racist right. as a way of depersonalizing the, the enemy or what they see as the enemy. What do we do about it? Expanding the police force, uh, community policing, so they actually know these people. Um, and, although, get, and getting the communities more involved in, in maintaining order and public safety and more, more people out on the street and activities. I mean, this business about a lot of movement in the communities, one of the things we found when we did a study in, in Newark, for instance, highest homicide rate in the country, very poor kind of community. People were there and had lived there for 20 years, but they stayed behind locked doors. They went inside when the sun went down and they did not come out. They did not answer their doors. And so people can't interact and there's no mm. sense of community when people are afraid because there's a drug dealer that lives on the floor. Yeah. Kids are rampaging through the building and they just hide behind their doors. But I think I think when, when you ask, what are we going to do? It's clear the police are at the forefront. I mean, that's who, who the community member sees as kind of the official response to crime. And that partnership, and it's got to be a partnership. Right now, it's not. I mean, right now, it's an antagonistic relationship between police and communities. And we've got to change that. They've got to both see themselves as involved in the same mission, which is keeping communities safe. And the police cannot do it without those citizens coming forward, cooperating, and really getting involved. We don't have the resources, and we don't have, have what they have, which is the intelligence of their community. Um, you know, what's happening, who's doing it, that, that the police simply need. And um, I think that's a, a prime area where we need to work. One of the ways in which I think, we've, I think you're right, that we've uh, brought about a reduction in, in racial bias in criminal sentencing or in the courts is by taking discretion away from, from the courts um, with determinate sentencing and so on. Now we're talking about community policing. Now, my understanding is that one thing about community policing is you're giving more discretion to Lots the police. Lots of discretion. Uh, it, so there's kind of a tension there. We, we want uh, community policing to solve the racial bias problem, um, but we're also asking these officers to have more discretion. Be to culturally use more sensitive in the way they approach yeah, the community that's, and train that's them in that be the key. Which says a lot for who we recruit and how we train. Um, you know, kind of as we vastly have expanded kind of police forces, people question whether or not we're getting a highly intelligent, high, culturally sensitive, I mean, who are we being able to recruit into these positions? I mean, I think that that's something, as we expand police forces in almost every major city like we're doing, we need to pay more attention to, and because we're going to give them more discretion we with this new model. You could get down to the point when the police have, police have to do some kind of an action in the community. There are, there are community kind of sponsors or representatives there who come out. You know, if cops have to come into my building, then, then I'm designated to be there and to help them out and kind of be the police's aid for my building. I mean, mm -hmm. that's that's the level we're going to need if we're going to really have an impact on some of these really high crime areas. Where, and bring a video camera with I you. I mean, one of, the, one of the situations we've had with our juvenile programs is, is we're trying to bring kids, after they've been away in a residential training program for, for a year because they were delinquents, they're sent back home to live in the projects. This is in Pittsburgh. We've got trackers who are supposed to go in and make sure they're home at 10 o'clock at night, they can't get into those buildings because of the drug dealers. I mean, these are guys who are former state policemen, football players, and they can't get into some of these buildings for fear of their life because of the drug dealing and the other kind of, of, of activity that's going on there. So, so what do we expect is going to happen to these to, kids? Yeah. I mean, it's a really difficult kind of situation, but we got to take those buildings back. I mean, you can't expect good things to happen in that kind of an environment.
one of the things I wanted to ask you, the, the rehabilitation programs, you're, you're bringing juvenile delinquents together and you get them off-site, you get them away from the neighborhood, but you're still bringing juvenile delinquents together. Are there any programs where you bring a juvenile delinquent together with non-delinquent kids and, and let them have some friends who aren't delinquent? People have, people have done that of trying to, trying to intersperse kids with, uh, you know, mix the delinquents with other kinds of kids. And in fact, that's typically what a school system does. Is right. Take take John out of his environment where he's acting up, and move him to other to some other school. But if there's other kinds of problems that have been going on, I mean, a few kids have fallen under bad influences, and that's what a parent does who takes their kid out and puts them in private school. But a lot of kids where the kids are really acting out, then they become the typhoid Mary causing problems in the next school and the next yeah, school. So, so generally, for efficiency reasons, you have to group them together. And the problem is you gotta you gotta teach them to maintain a positive kind of atmosphere. There's specific techniques for maintaining what's called a positive peer culture. And I've seen that work in programs where the kids can maintain order. If one kid tries to run away, the other kids will stop. If a new tough kid tries to come in and beat other kids up, four kids, four small kids can take down a, a two hundred and twenty pound you know, bully if they want to, and, and I've seen programs where they're trained to do that, and it can work. Are but there I schools think... like that? Has anyone tried to implement such programs in schools so that they don't have to go to some rehabilitation? In fact, camp? one of the programs we work with, Vision Quest, yes, in Pennsylvania, they're actually running some of the schools, so the delinquency program has been brought in to actually run the entire uh -huh. school. But I think this notion that Rob's talking about is creating positive role models. I mean, whether it's it's peers or it's fathers or it's adults or it's I mean whoever for for some kids now in the urban and trying to find a positive role model simply doesn't exist in their lives and so when you think of programs like Big Brothers um, you know I think that's another way that community members can get involved in New Jersey they actually have community sponsors people from the church who are willing to sponsor a kid um, I mean I think we're gonna have to do that for these people who don't normally see people going to legitimate jobs. And I think the media, again, can play a positive role in this, of creating not Arnold Schwarzenegger as the role model for our kids in Terminator, but create some positive role models through the media that kids can emulate. We don't do that now. We don't invest in it. I mean, creating kind of positive images for kids, particularly in those, you know, one to eight-year-old where they're very, um, vulnerable to what they're seeing in those early ages. We, do, we, we don't do it a lot. We do it some, and those programs are really interesting to see. I mean, the benefits the, you know, the participants or the volunteers get out of it are you know, as much or more than the kids get out of it. It really gets them out of, out of helping people. I just go back to the, I'd love to be able to turn on, when I get in bed at 11 o'clock, I'm ready to fall asleep. I'd love to be able to turn it on and see some program about one of those things, some kind of mentoring program, then the disasters, you know, that you get to watch at 11 o'clock before you go to sleep, right? The bomb here, the murder here, the stay tuned, you know, for, for you know, more tape on this. It's a tough I mean, show. I think what, what we've been going through here kind of at least convinces me that, that the topic that, that we deal with, crime, is probably more complex and more important and affects more people every day than probably anything else that's going on in our country. I mean, it's hard. It's, it's just all over the place. Um, it's difficult. I mean, there are no easy answers. And I think as we get, as we study more, we get more informed, actually, we become smarter about how very difficult it is and how it's going to take a lot of people from a lot of different perspectives. 
So I guess we got a lot of work to do. So I guess we better get back to work. <laughs> <laughs> Want more episodes like this? Don't forget to subscribe and get updates each week for the free to choose media podcast.